Welcome to Manifold. My guest today is Ray McGovern. McGovern came to Washington from his native Bronx in the early 60s as an Army Infantry Intelligence Officer and then served as a CIA analyst for 27 years from the administration of JFK to that of George H.W. Bush. Ray's duties included chairing national intelligence estimates and preparing the president's daily brief, which he briefed one-on-one to President Reagan's five most senior national security advisors from 1981 to 1985. In January 2003, Ray co-created the Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, VIPS, to expose how intelligence was being falsified to justify war on Iraq. It is a great honor to have Ray on the show. Uh, I've admired you for a long time, Ray, as a man of very high conviction. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be with you. So uh, I, would l- I always like to start with a little bit of early life history of my guests, and I think the audience appreciates that. You've had a long and, uh, I think, important life of service to your country. I was hoping to start by talking about your time in the CIA between 63 and, uh, I guess, the mid or late 80s. Um, One of the things that I heard you say in another interview was that the year you entered the CIA was the same year in which JFK was assassinated. And... I've always felt that given your career path and given your insights into how the world of spooks works, you might have something to say about the truth behind what happened to JFK, which I regard as still a, an unsettled historical matter and very important to the history of this country. So maybe we could just start with that for a little bit. Sure. Uh, Steve, I served from 1963 to 1990. Uh, at first, I was a callow youth, uh, learning the ropes and learning what Washington was like. Uh, when I left, I knew a lot more, but it still did not occur to me that those folks uh, working on the other side of those turnstiles, turnstiles? Yeah, in the new headquarters building, new when I entered the CIA, there were turnstiles on every floor. Okay, and the analysts could not go to where the operators operated, where they overthrew governments and other things, assassinated people, and they couldn't come to where we were. Now, we we could talk on the telephone, of course, but there were barricades. There were turnstiles, okay? Now, we didn't really know, we analysts, what was going on on the other side of those things. But uh, just to get right to your, right to your question, uh, I have become convinced in the last decade or more uh, that it was those fellows on the other side of the barricades that did uh, President Kennedy in. Uh, the Warren Commission was a laugh. It was run by Alan Dulles, who had been head of the CIA and had been cashiered by Kennedy for lying to him about the Bay of Pigs. We know from coffee-stained notes discovered on Alan Dulles's desk when he died, a little note he wrote to himself uh, on the Bay of Pigs, uh, oh, we're going to get bogged down uh, on the beach, but the president is not going to be able to avoid committing U.S. forces when the enterprise would otherwise fail, period. End quote. What was the enterprise overthrowing Castro? Oh, so he was convinced, despite how many times JFK said, look, I have my doubts about this operation. Eisenhower proved it. Just realize you're not going to get me to commit any U.S. forces, or Air Forces, Army, anything to this enterprise. You guys take credit for it. You do it by yourselves. Got to understand that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, sir. So he would 
Kennedy was mousetrapped. Worse still, from my point of view, <laughs> Kennedy was told that as soon as they landed on the beach, there would be a spontaneous uprising, and they would throw Castro off. Oh, where'd he get that stuff? From the other side of the turnstiles. The, the analysts were not even briefed on the operation, never asked whether it was likely that Fidel Castro would be overthrown, even if the, the beach landing succeeded. No. Truman watched all this, okay? And then when Kennedy was assassinated, he and his chief intelligence guy from way back, Admiral Souders, we see from their correspondence, they thought they really had to do something about the CIA. And so, long story short, Truman wrote an op-ed saying, this is not the CIA that I created. We have to rein it in. Uh, we can't have all this cloak and dagger stuff there. They're doing things that I never approved, okay? Now, where did that appear? That appeared in the Washington Post exactly one month. One month after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Oh. Um, maybe you didn't know about that, Steve. You're, you're forgiven because it only appeared in the first edition. The Washington Post. <laughs> now, in those days, I can't remember explicitly, but there were either two or three editions of the Post. It was pulled. No radio, TV outlet ran it. No other newspaper ran it except the Independence, whatever it is, Observer down there in Missouri. And so it was forgotten. And most people have just completely unaware that I that Truman himself said this. Okay, now Truman knew which end was up. He was giving a warning. He said, uh, what presidents need to avoid is being mousetrapped. He didn't say mousetrapped, but being given bad information to justify these kinds of covert actions. Okay. So what happened? Well, that was dangerous enough, but even in those days, the media was very patriotic, right? And pull that right, <laughs> pull that, pull that story out, okay? But what did Alan Dulles do? Well, he manufactured a reason to give a speech in Kansas City, Missouri, and he wrote to President Truman. Said, "While I'm in the area, I'd like to drop by and see you." And so Truman said, "Sure." So, so they had this little tête-à-tête, and. Uh, Dulles said, you didn't really, you didn't really write that, did you? You don't really think true. Well, of course I do. Yeah, come on. That, you know, that, that, that could endanger our national security if people think, look, I, quite scripsy, scripsy, what, what I wrote, I wrote, okay? And uh, so Dulles goes away. And now what does Dulles do in traditional covert action manner? He dictates dictates a memo of conversation uh, about his session with President, ex-President Truman right now. And he says, Truman disavowed what he said in that Washington Post uh, editorial. And he gives that to Larry Houston, the first general counsel of the CIA who served for 30 years part of the old boy club, okay? He puts that in the file with Larry Houston, just in case it could come in handy someday, right? So, <laughs> uh, just to show that Truman said nothing of the sort, in other words, what what uh, what was written down by Dulles, uh, Life magazine had a big article just a month later or so, and they had Truman said, sure, I, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to put across. This is a dangerous situation. So he was disavowing. A thing. What I'm saying here is that when Dulles was able to insinuate himself on the Warren Commission, he pretty much ran the whole thing. Now, when people said, well, wait a second, now, there's some 
wild speculation that CIA may have had a hand hand in the assassination. So this doesn't seem quite right uh, to have the head, former head of the CIA sacked by Kennedy uh, running the commission. I'm running you. Ran the commission, but yeah, he's one of the principal. He's one of the members. Okay, so what was the answer? You got it, Steve. Conspiracy theorists. <laughs> These guys are all conspiracy theorists. Okay, that was when that phrase really took off. Okay, conspiracy theorists, and you can dismiss them now. Let me just. Uh, there's plenty more detail I can adduce here, but uh, let me just say that. Is an excellent book. It's about 15 years old now. Some people know about it. I think I have it. Uh, I usually have it right here so that I can show people. It's called JFK and the Unspeakable. It's written by James Douglas, uh, who has no access to grind at all. He, he's a Catholic worker, if you can believe it. He runs a, a Catholic worker house in Birmingham, Alabama. He lives on the railroad tracks. You can hardly talk to him on the phone with the train going by. Uh, he poured his life's blood into this, okay? And he dedicates it to two people, Vince Salandria and Marty Schatz. Now, Marty Schatz wrote a book, which poignantly is called History Will Not Absolve Us. It's really hard to see. But his point is simply that, and of course, it's even more true now, most Americans, a majority of Americans, believe that uh, Kennedy was assassinated by what is called the deep state, national security state, combination of the CIA, Joint Chiefs of Staff, portion of the FBI, okay? They believe that's the case, but they don't know it. And the reason they don't know it it's because they don't really want to know it and the reason they don't really want to know it is because it's so terribly horrible changed the course of history because kennedy was about to make a real peace with our with our opposite power there the, the soviet union after the cuban missile crisis in 62 you know this is 63 he's he's made this wonderful speech at american university on June 10th, reaching out, saying, look, you know, we all share the same planet. Uh, we want the best for our own children. Let's see if we can have a decent relationship and respect everyone, including Russians, as people who want the best for their children. So uh, he also, I'll finish with this here. Sorry to be so long-winded. But he also issued two executive orders. One said that a thousand U.S. advisory troops at the time from Vietnam will be pulled out by the end of 1963, same year he was killed. And the bulk of the rest of them would be pulled out uh, by the end of 1965. Whoa. Going soft on communism. My God. All of Southeast Asia. China, Indonesia, the, the, the domino effect. This is so you want to, you want to know what kind of reasoning was going through the Joint Chiefs at the time. Well, that was it. You can't, you can't make peace with these communists. It's far better when you had the chance in 62 to destroy the Russians. You missed it. Now you're going really, they're going too far. Now, that was the mentality. It's hard for anyone to put themselves in that position, but I was there, okay? I was <laughs> I went to two army schools, infantry school, intelligence school, and then I served for two years. I know what the mentality was. It was all complete, completely this business about the communist menace, and I was a true believer until I started to learn which head was up, and that didn't really come, I'm sorry to say, and until I started working as an analyst at the CIA and saw that there's much bigger and much more complicated world. So uh, you mentioned those two books. Um, is it fair to say for the audience that the large conclusions, that the main conclusions of those books you find plausible and rather than rehearse everything on the podcast, we could just tell the readers to go look at those books and that 
Ray McGovern finds much of what is in those books plausible. Is that a fair characterization? It would be, Steve. And hold on one more minute. Uh, people who read fast might want to get a hold of this one. Good. Now, this one hits close to home because the story in this one is written by a man named Peter Janney, who is the son of a very high-level CIA official I worked for. My first job. Fred Janney is what we call him. Okay. He was involved not in the assassination that we can prove, but in the cover-up. Long, long story short, Mary was Mary Meyer. She was a, a very, very close friend of JFK. Okay. She kept the diary. They were deathly afraid that the diary would indicate what JFK and she had talked about in terms of his longevity. Okay. And so they couldn't filched the diary, so they killed her on the towpath outside Georgetown and then raided her house. Alan Dulles was one of those people. Not Alan Dulles, but uh, James Meyer. Yeah, and Angleton, yeah. So, and for Jenny, Peter Jenny's father was involved in that. And I knew Fred Jenny as a kind of taciturn high-level guy who was right in there with the, with all the, the guys that would have done this thing. And so it came as a, as a surprise, but not a shock. <clears throat> when Peter visited me way back 20 years ago and, and, I, and interviewed me, and uh, I was, uh, you know, really saddened to hear about, about his father's role in this, but it took a lot of guts for Peter to tell that story. And uh, I, I've used some of that Material, some of the memos that Janney wrote to cover this thing up in some of my lectures. So, yeah, it's uh, the important point maybe I should make here is that it's totally believable that the Warren Commission was a farce, okay? Because of all the, ev all the evidence has come out since, okay? Uh, and most people appropriately believe that Kennedy was killed by the deep state. Now, again, as Marty Schatz says here in a really well-written book, History Will not, not Absolve Us, he says a majority of people, a majority of Americans believe that, but they don't know it. And the reason they don't know it is because it's just too, too unspeakable, uh, too, too terrible to know. And uh, we see it carrying right down to this day. You know, I'll just say one more thing in this respect, but when Trump came in, now, I hold no brief for Donald Trump. Please realize that at the outset. I keep hearing my wife in my ear saying, Ray, for God's sake, tell people what you think of Donald Trump. Okay, I think he was the worst president that we ever had. He's got a close contender now and his successor. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, when Donald Trump won, this real estate guy from New York, right? So he's not wise to the ways of Washington. So he's criticizing the CIA, the FBI. He's criticizing the power brokers in Washington. And so what happens? Well, before he's sworn in, namely on the 2nd of January, Rachel Maddow invites Chuck Schumer in for an interview. And she says, Chuck, Chuck, you said you had something important to say. What, what is it? And Schumer said, oh, Rachel, I thought that Trump was a pretty smart guy, but he's done something very, very foolish. Oh, what would that be, Chuck? He's taken on the intelligence community. They have six ways to Sunday to get back at you. He's done a, a very foolish thing. And then Schumer adds, we need the intelligence community. Without the intelligence community, we would have never learned about the Russian hacking of the DNC emails. <laughs> now, I'm sorry to say that most Americans don't know how ironic that is. 
Of course we wouldn't have known without the because they manufactured the whole, <laughs> the whole but the other point, of course, is here's a warning. Look, Trump, don't think you're going to be able to run this place. And especially don't think you can denigrate the CIA and the FBI and the other powers that be. We got six ways to Sunday to get back at you. And that same month, January 2017, uh, Obama is convening his security officials and say, okay, how are we going to get this guy? <laughs> oh, we got the Russian hacking, which, of course, has been since disproved. Uh, how about uh, those P-tapes? Let, let's use those P-tapes and use everything else. That, and, you know, the hacking is going to do it. Probably we'll blame the hacking on Russia. Uh, we hate, hate both, WikiLeaks and Russia. We'll get WikiLeaks and, man, we can di- di- distract attention. <laughs> we can distract attention from what's in those emails, which show Hillary stacked the deck with the DNC. So much so that uh, Bernie Sanders didn't didn't have a snowball's chance in hell to get the nomination. So it was a wonderful operation. Uh, Jake Sullivan can take credit if credit is the right word for it. And RussiaGate persisted for seven, almost eight years now. And the reason I mention this is not to regurgitate all history. This is consequential. Americans have learned to hate Poochie to hate the Russians, and just have been so accustomed, so brainwashed, I use the word advisedly, to believe that the Russians are capable of anything, that I dare say if Biden wanted to put troops on the ground in Ukraine, my God, with the media in his in his support, uh, he probably would get the majority of not only Congress, but Americans to support that disastrous move. And I'll just finish up here with this one remark. We talked about John Kennedy. One thing he said in that June 10, 1963 speech at American University, he said, the one thing that's most important here is with two nuclear nations, nuclear weapons nations, we must avoid uh, putting one side uh, to a choice between humiliating defeat and using these damn things. I mean, you didn't say these damn things, but hello. So ever since then, 1963, during my tenure till 1990, and up until two years ago, American presidents kind of you know, abided by that. For God's sake, you don't want to put one, one your adversary with a new Dave April Belly in the choice between accumulating defeat. That's what we've done now. Okay. The Russians are not facing a humiliating defeat in Ukraine. We are. We and the Ukrainians. So bottom line here. What will Biden do? Humiliating defeat facing election year. Some some fear that if this other guy wins, these guys could go all, all go to jail. I don't exaggerate there. The, the evidence is there, okay? So what does he do? Faced with a humiliating defeat? I'm afraid that some general or admiral say, well, now, now we, we exhausted all those other shells, but we have these little mini nukes, and they're only about 10% of what we dropped on Hiroshima. So, so we can yell, that will show the Russians, we will we will avoid a humiliating defeat and defeat in the election, and then we'll be we won't have to worry about that guy with the orange hair anymore because he's not going to put us in jail. Now, you know, I've been an analyst for a long time. That may say sound a little strange to you, but it's factually based, and uh, I stand by it. So you 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 mentioned so many interesting things and all of those things we could go down a rabbit hole and we could talk about <clears throat> the cover-up of the JFK assassination, what happened to Mary Meyer. We could talk about uh, James Angleton. We could talk about what happened to Donald Trump, uh, the activities of the 
so-called deep state against Donald Trump after he was before and after he was elected. But I, I fear we don't have enough time, but maybe I could paraphrase something of what you said and just see if you agree with it, that the extent to which there is some kind of power structure, which we could call the deep state, which might involve the military industrial complex and the intelligence agencies. And I believe you've even sort of extended it to include parts of academia and other things as well. That entity exerts influence domestically and is not above interference with elections here in the United States and the conduct of the executive branch, for example, to the extent, I mean, going even to the extent of assassinating the president, right, in the past and, and trying to undermine a recent president, Donald Trump. It, is that a fair picture of reality? Is, is that the thing that you would like Americans to understand better about their own society? Short answer, yes. I can adduce one more example that is illustrative, and that is uh, having to do with the 2020 election. It was nip and tuck, Trump and Biden. And all of a sudden, a couple months before the election, Hunter Biden's laptop <laughs> was discovered. The FBI didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pull or a 12-foot check. You know, I mean, it's just they want to touch it. And so, but they had it. Oh, they had it. Well, it comes down to the last debate, right? And Tony Blinken, this is sworn testimony now by a former acting chief of the CIA. His name is Mikey Morell. Tony Blinken calls Mikey Morell, his old friend, now retired, and says, his laptop, you know, it shows that not only Hunter, but his daddy were, you know, I'm going to take. We got to do something about that. Can you get a handful of, of former intelligence directors to, to say that that's a Russian intelligence disinformation operation? Could you do that? And Mikey says, no problem. You want five? I'll get you 50. <laughs> Two days later, 50 former intelligence directors, some of them former CIA directors, plus Mikey Morrell, so 51, pronounce and give it to Politico. <laughs> we have considered that this bears all the earmarks of a Russian intelligence disinformation operation. Okay. Oh, that's publicized. Okay. The next debate, a week later, uh, Trump, naive to the ways of Washington and probably not well briefed on this, says to Biden, what about that laptop? For God's sake, it shows you're on the tank, right? <laughs> and Biden says, oh, Mr. Trump, <laughs> don't you realize that 50 former intelligence directors were said that bears all the earmarks of a Russian intelligence disinformation. I picture that you're not on it. Now, that was just days before the election. I don't know if that affected the election results or not. Who could know that? Okay. <laughs> it surely didn't help Trump. So you talk about interference with elections. Well, there's a good example, even more recent than 2016. One last remark. Of these 51 former intelligence directors, how many thought to ask the FBI who had the computer, Hunter's laptop, whether this bore the earmarks of Russian intelligence information? <laughs> well, if any did, they, they lied when they signed that statement. It bore no such earmarks. And, yeah, that's the kind of thing we run into. Again, I hold no brief for Trump, but fair is fair. Uh, this kind of stuff that goes on domestically now, as well as in foreign affairs, in this conjunction between the FBI and now Homeland Security and other things, you know, it's a danger to our uh, to our democracy, pure and simple, not only the Fourth and the First Amendments, but some of the others as well. So for my audience that maybe didn't follow this laptop story so closely, I believe it's now been acknowledged, for example, even by the New York Times, that the laptop is actually real. And so, so these, these 50 plus <clears throat> former intelligence directors, uh, that, you know, they're not, 
they're probably being very quiet now about their evaluation back in 2020. Now, I think the only question that is still the, I think the uncertainty that the New York Times would like to maintain is that, oh, if you, if someone leaks out an excerpt from that laptop, some video of Hunter Biden smoking crack or, you know, some receipt from some Chinese company or Ukrainian company that gave him a lot of money. Well, that might not have really come from the laptop. That might, you know, uh, be some kind of fake uh, intelligence, but they no longer deny that the laptop is real and that there is damaging information on the on the laptop. I think is that a fair characterization of where we are? Yes, that is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, now you you started talking a little bit about Ukraine, and obviously we have a, another conflict in the Middle East, and um, so I think you know we could shift over to maybe you would consider those the the most pressing things that uh, we could talk about. I did want to spend a little bit of time on your sort of worldview of the role of U.S. intelligence services in deep state and, uh, you know, in what to what extent they affect or influence the polity domestically here in the United States. And so I just wanted you to be able to express yourself about all that. Um, turning to Ukraine, obviously, every one of these things that we could discuss, for example, the Ukraine conflict or what's happening in Gaza or in uh, Yemen has a very long, deep history. We could spend the whole hour just talking about that history. I believe it's your view that Ukraine was in some sense an unnecessary war, that if the United States had given Putin some guarantees concerning the neutrality of Ukraine, the whole thing could have been avoided. Uh, but if, if, we, if we ignore that water under the bridge, the situation now is perhaps we are about to take the loss in Ukraine. Uh, maybe you can just uh, elaborate on what I just said, or, or you, you can disagree, obviously, with what I just said. Well, I was just making a little note here, uh, writing Stoltenberg, uh, the head of NATO, uh, in a uh, real monumental uh, gaffe about, well, actually in September, uh, said, uh, Bruno, it's all about NATO. Putin told us he doesn't want any NATO expansion. And he said, if you expand NATO to Ukraine, we will invade Ukraine. (laughs) And so we said, no, we will agree to that. And now Putin has an expansion of NATO. Look at Sweden. Look at (laughs) Finland. (laughs) He wanted to contain NATO and he got NATO expansion. We told him no, and so he invaded. Huh? <laughs> My God, you know, every bobbing head uh, the weeks before, this has nothing to do with NATO. No, no, the poaching wants to take over Ukraine, and then after Ukraine, the Russia now. <laughs> so that's that. Uh, one aspect that most Americans have no idea about, and which I think uh, gives you a good uh, feel for how Putin and his, uh, it's not only Putin, of course, we'll say Putin instead of Moscow or the Kremlin. Um, they were really, they were really trying to warn the United States, uh, that incorporating Ukraine and Georgia into NATO was a bridge too far, or as the smart people in Washington say, a red line, right? Okay. So, in 2008, so this goes back away, okay, Bill Burns, who's now head of the CIA, was our ambassador in Moscow. And on February 2nd, 2008, he was called in by the then new foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Lavrov. Mr. Burns, do you know what NYET means? <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. Well, net means net. This is a red line for us. No NATO membership for Ukraine or Georgia. Do you understand that, Mr. Barnes? Uh, yes, I do. Will you report that back? Yes, I will. Okay. Uh, because, says Lamarov, if NATO incorporates Ukraine, there will be civil war in Ukraine, and we will have to decide whether we have to intervene or not. So 
We don't want that choice. Tell your people. And besides, we have geopolitical interests in our neck of the woods, just like you do, let's say, in the Caribbean. Okay. So what does Burns do? He reports, he reports it straight back to Condoleezza Rice and Dick Cheney, who are running the government in those days. He, he says, uh, the title of his cable is Nyet means Nyet, Russia's red lines on NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. And then he tells the whole school, and he, he permits himself to make a, a comment. Now, ambassadors can do that, but they usually don't uh, when the comment goes across the grain of what Dick Cheney or Condoleezza Rice, his nominal boss, would think. He says, you know, every major country has a, has a right to have strategic concerns in their area. And so it's not surprising that everyone from the, from the lowest guy in the Kremlin to the very, they're, they're, they're neuralgic about this, okay? So that's to his credit. Like <laughs> this bill, just a parenthetically, what does CIA director Bill Burns say now? Always completely unprovoked. That the, the Russian invasion was completely unprovoked. Okay, so let's get back to uh, to the, the scheme here. Two thousand and eight, February second, Lavrov to Bill Burns. April third, in Bucharest. NATO summit, declaration, Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO, period, end quote. Wow. That was Bush. That was Cheney. That was Condoleezza Rice disregarding this warning. So it goes back there. Now, it took a while. It took till 2014 until the neocons running our government got their act together and overturned in a coup uh, the duly elected government in Kiev, in Ukraine. Now, there's a long story to that, but uh, just trust me, okay? That was the most blatant coup in the history of mankind because it was advertised in detail two and a half weeks before by an intercepted message between Victoria Nuland, Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, and Jeffrey Pyatt, U.S. Ambassador in Kiev. They named who would be the next prime minister and so forth. They said that, they said, oh, and by the way, we have word that Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden, is willing to come in at the end and seal this because we may need an international personality to um, put this uh, put this thing all, to glue it all together. And, uh, and we know that from, oh, from Jake Sullivan, who, of course, is Vice President Biden's National Security Advisor. So, Ray, can, now, sorry to interrupt yeah. you. I just wanted to clarify one point. Um, sure. This conversation, uh, the famous conversation, which involved Victoria Newland, is there a U.S. official line on this? Like, is there a claim from the U.S. side that this is faked? It, because obviously it's very damning. It, it, it does implicate the U.S. in a coup in 2014 against a democratically elected government in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there a formal position of the U.S. government on that phone call or that communication? There's no denial. Au contraire, <laughs> we know it's genuine because Victoria Nuland uh, allowed herself to say in response to the ambassador, the ambassador said, you know, the EU, the EU is not going to like this. And, and she said, F, you know yes. what the F word is, right? Yes. F the EU. And so two days after the conversation appeared on YouTube. Uh, she apologized. She said, I didn't really mean F the EU. Please forgive me for that indelicate remark. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, the voices themselves are authentic. It's really quite bizarre. I was on Amy Goodman right after that happened, and I was debating this fellow Snyder uh, from, uh, from Snyder Yale. From Yale. <laughs> yeah, big. Yes. And so, you know, he was really going off the deep end, I thought. So I said, well, uh, well what about that intercepted conversation uh, that was uh, released two and a half weeks before the coup? And he, he says, is that all you got? <laughs> and you know, you, know, you know how you wish you had been more compass mentis? And I mean, I mean I, I've, I've seen a lot of coups in my career. I've never seen one more blatant than that. 
But Amy, Amy jumped in and said, well, now we'll go to the next question. So is that all I got? Well, how much what do you need, Ted? So, yeah, anyhow, uh, there's this mindset that uh, nothing, no facts, not even a deceptive conversation is acknowledged as authentic by one of the interlocutors uh, can be accepted as evidence if you don't want to believe it. So uh, I guess I guess your original question was uh, how we, we got into this. Well, that was the coup in 2014. Uh, then the question became, what do we do about this? You know, I, well, the U.S. is in control here. The Russians, it's, it, the Russians are on deck. What, what are the Russians going to do? Okay. Well, now Putin was in Sochi. Okay. He was in Sochi when the coup happened. Now I asked myself, so why is Putin still, well, it's the Winter Olympics, but you know, well, he must have thought, as I did, that that coup attempt was blown. I mean, that's the the intelligence word for you blow a coup by releasing it two and a half weeks before. So probably Putin felt the same way I did. Well, good try for for all these guys who are slated to take over Ukraine. They're not going to do it now because it's blown. Not so. They do it anyway on the 14th of February. So he comes back on the 15th and he says, okay, guys, his military and other advisors, what are we going to do? Well, the new Ukrainian government had already said we're going to join NATO and had already said we're going to ban Russian as an official language in Ukraine. Now, the real deal had to do with Russia's only warm water all year round naval base in Sevastopol in Crimea. Okay, the biggest base they have, naval base. Okay, what are we gonna do about that? So uh, Putin says, "Well, we can't let that be taken over by by NATO, for God's sake." And uh, they said, "Well, you know, the people there in Crimea don't want that either. They're all mostly all Russian speakers. So, so how do they feel about it?" Says Putin. Well, they would vote to join us. And Putin said, "You know, I remember." When Crimea was part of uh, part of Russia, not part of Ukraine, what happened? And they say, well, you know, Khrushchev, when when Stalin died, Khrushchev needed all the political support he could get. He lived right next to Ukraine, and he thought, well, he, he did a ukaz, you know, he, he wrote got a piece of paper and declared that uh, Crimea now would be part of Ukraine. He got lots of support. Ukraine, of course, was part of the Soviet Union, so we're sort of academic then, not academic anymore. So, so why don't you do an ukaz there, Putin? And Putin says, I don't like ukazes. Let's, let's do a plebiscite. Let's see how the Crimeans feel. And they did that. Now, the results of that plebiscite over 90% said, yeah, we'd really like to join Russia, okay? And that happened, okay? A month later, and then a month later, uh, Putin had a big celebration about that. Now, what happened next? Well, the people in Donetsk and Lugansk also didn't want to live under this coup regime. They wanted to be able to speak their own language, and they wanted not to be shelled as they were starting to be under this new coup regime. And so what they did was I went to Putin and said, oh, it's a really good idea to embrace uh, Crimea. Please take us in too. And Putin said, no, yet. You work it out. We have this Minsk agreement where we're negotiating under German and a French supervision with the Ukrainian government and leaders of Donetsk and Lugansk have a ceasefire and work this thing out so that you, Lugansk and Donetsk, can have a, re- a reasonable degree of regional autonomy, be able to speak your own language, and so forth. Now, that was what they decided. Uh, the Ukrainians mounted a major offensive, but it didn't work. So they got together in Minsk, Belarus, and they worked out an agreement where those provisions would be abided by. That was 2015, early 2015, 
What happened? Germany and France diddled and diddled for seven years. And finally, there was no movement on any of that stuff, least of all regional autonomy. Now, how do we know this? Because Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany at the time, and Francois Hollande, who was the president of France, have written it. And Angela Merkel said, we, we were just buying time for the Ukrainian army to be trained up to NATO standards and equipped and weaponized. And all. We we're just buying time. So, And look at them now. Look at the Ukrainian army now. Hollande said the same thing. Okay. So this is Putin at the end of 2021. He says, okay, we're going to make one last chance. We'll, we'll give a treaty to you, to uh, NATO and to the U.S. And we'll have provisions which will, will prohibit, uh, Ukraine from joining NATO and other provisions. And so they do that in the middle of December. The U.S. and NATO reject it out of hand. I quoted Stoltenberg before. Okay. So now we're getting to the end of December. 2021. Remember, the the uh, invasion started uh, February 24th, 2022. So we're just two months before the invasion. What happens? Well, on the 21st of December, Putin addresses his top military. You had to have four stars or the equivalent to be there, and the defense minister. And he says, you know, we are in increasing danger because of medium and short-range missiles uh, already emplaced in Romania and Poland and about to be emplaced in Ukraine. Now, uh, these right now have about nine minutes time to target from these Romanian and Polish bases. If and when the U.S. gets hypersonic missiles, which they will surely get eventually, I will have five minutes to decide whether to blow up the rest of the world. Now, I didn't say it in those words, but I was looking at these military guys, you know, and I'm looking at them too. I've seen life. Okay, so, so I could see them thinking, wow. And then he says, so we need concrete agreements. We need something on paper. We need something better than oral promises. And I can see these guys thinking, yeah, Vladimir Vladimirovich, uh, wasn't the ABM treaty on a piece of paper? Wasn't the INF Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty? On a piece, wasn't the open... Yeah. Come on, Vladimir, we need a little bit more than that. So nine days later, the 30th of December, 2021, uh, Putin calls up the White House, or as people do, and they say, Mr. Putin wants to talk to Mr. Biden right now. And Biden says, well, the White House is from wasting him. Our negotiators are going to meet in Geneva on the 9th and 10th of January, for God's sake. Why would you have to talk to him right now? Well, uh, he just needs to. And to his credit, that Biden takes the call. And Putin uh, says, uh, you know, I told my military people that you're going to give hypersonic missiles to Ukraine. They wanted me to get a personal commitment from you not to do that. Read out from that conversation, Mr. Biden said, that the U.S. has no intention to put offensive strike missiles in Ukraine, period, end quote. January 30th. Next day, New Year's Eve was never so big in, uh, in the Kremlin. Ushakov, the main advisor to, to Putin, jumping up and down saying, look, this is not only, this shows that they're taking our security concerns seriously, uh, of those provisions in that draft treaty we gave them, fully five of the eight are addressed by, by this, this commitment not to put offensive strike missiles in Ukraine. What happens? Whoa. That was December 30th. 
They meet in Geneva on the 9th and 10th of January, and the Russians say, okay, let's go to it. And uh, what was her name? Uh, Wendy Sherman, or, or she said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, you know, that uh, undertaking by Biden in the personal conversation with Putin on 30th of December, not to put offensive strike missiles in Ukraine. Let's, let's work that out. And Sherman says, I don't have any instructions about that. I, I don't have anything about that. Long story short, on the 12th of February, so 12th February, January, December, about, about six weeks after that undertaking by Biden, Biden talks to Putin one more time, right? Probably the last time they'll talk. And the, and the readout from that is, Mr. Biden refused to address the business about not deploying intermediate or what they call offensive strike missiles in Ukraine. And he also refused to talk about uh, Ukrainian non-membership in NATO, period. 12th of February, 24th of February, when the Russians invade. Now, I'm not saying that that's the only reason that the Russians wanted to make sure uh, that Ukraine was not part of NATO. I'm saying it was a big reason, and I'm saying that those those Americans with hair like I have here can remember something very, very analogous, and that was the Cuban Missile Crisis, when Khrushchev got it into his head to put offensive strike missiles in Cuba. <laughs> and I'll just finish up with this analogy. Those offensive strike missiles back in the day could reach Washington in about 10 minutes, could reach Savannah and Norfolk, uh, our naval bases there, in, in about seven to eight minutes, okay? They were trying to ship uh, ship in uh, its immediate range ballistic missiles, but the blockade put in by, by Kennedy prevented that. But they were ready to go, okay, until Kennedy faced them down. And Kennedy did a blockade. Okay, that's an act of war. He did anyway. Uh, he assembled an invasion force in, in, in Key West. Invasion, that's not me. He had threatened nuclear war. You're not supposed to do that, right? Nobody. <laughs> I was on active duty at that time at Fort Benning, Georgia. Nobody in the whole country ever thought to say, you're overreacting there, JFK, for God's sake. You're overreacting. This is illegal what you're doing. A blockade. And besides, Cuba is a sovereign nation. They have every right to pick their alliances and, and to to, Im, to uh, import weaponry and all that. So what are you going to have, have cocked for? And the answer, of course, is <laughs> because we're a nuclear nation and we have the power to make sure that our core interests and in this case, it's our core interest not to be seven, eight minutes away from Washington. Now it's, you know, similarly five minutes for, for Moscow from, from uh, bases in Ukraine. Uh, the core interest will be taken into account. And whether it's legal or illegal, people are going to do things to protect their core interests. Last thing I'll say is that before Putin did this, he got assurances from Xi Jinping that China would support him. This came as a big surprise to all my Chinese uh, analyst friends. Um, the Chinese who were in it, in support of Russia from the get-go, violating their old policy of non-intervention. You know, Westphalia, Westphalia, 1648. You don't mess around. You don't cross borders and all that stuff. They put that on ice. And they said, and they even changed their rhetoric, and they said, we have to judge each situation according to its own merits. And when core interests are involved, as Russia's core interests are in Ukraine, as ours are in Taiwan, well, you do what's necessary to protect those core interests. Sorry to carry on so long, but most Americans don't know a lot of this. Yeah, so Ray, thanks for <clears throat> going through the details leading up to the conflict and as you just said, I think very few Americans, even people who consider themselves well-informed, who consider themselves intellectuals, university professors, very few of them know the history of the lead-up from, say, 2014 until the invasion in 2022. Uh, I'm glad you went through the details. I think it's fair to say, I think you and I both believe the U.S. 
could have prevented this conflict on many occasions between 2014 and 2022. We did not. However, that is now history. So in the final, say, 20 minutes that we have, I guess, let me ask you to address two things. So one is the strategic implications of the U.S., in a sense, not taking the off-ramp from this Ukraine conflict, because to me, it looks like a disaster to have China and Russia in a tight alliance against the United States. And in fact, if the U.S. had just been somewhat more accommodating to Putin, they could have peeled Russia away from China, actually, uh, over the last decade or so. But in fact, they did the opposite and solidified that alliance. So, so to me, in a, in a world where in the next 20 years, the main competitor, geopolitical and geostrategic competitors, China, this was a terrible mistake. Um, maybe we maybe we won by degrading the Russian military or whatever. We may have won some small tactical victory by causing this war at the cost of killing lots of Ukrainians and Russians. But the long-term strategic consequence to me seems like a very negative one for U.S. grand strategy. Maybe, maybe you could just react to that. What you say is true, and the question, of course, is why? Why are these people so blind? Uh, why do these people think they can do these things and prevail? Now, the notion that the U.S. is exceptional, or as Madeleine Albright once put it, indispensable, is something that rattles around in Joe Biden's mind, together with the innate fear of those Russians and those Chaikoms. For those of younger age, Chaikoms are Chinese communists, but they're always pronounced Chaikoms, okay? So this is an old guy who has a mindset and I used to think that, well, maybe it was mostly rhetoric, but then I got an account of a, a living room conversation with, he had some folks up in Maine about three months ago, and he said the same thing. We can prevail. And he quoted Madeleine Albright, we are the indispensable country of the world. We're excluding. Madeleine had it right, you know, and I'm saying, my God, the guy believes it. Now, two weeks ago, he was on, what, 60 Minutes, okay? And uh, the the uh, journalist says, well, now, Mr. President, uh, do you think that you can really handle the situation in Ukraine and Middle East and China? And, and Biden, you have to wish, he looks and he says, listen, you're talking about the United States of America. Yeah. The most powerful nation in the, in the history of the world. In the, in the history of the world. End quote. So, are Blinken and Sullivan and Newland and Avril Haines, the head of the intelligence setup, going to say, ah, you know, Mr. Biden, we used to be that. After World War II, and then after Russia, the Soviet Union imploded. Yeah, we used to be that, but that ain't so anymore. And we're not going to be able to handle Ukraine and Southwest Asia and China. And besides, Mr. Biden, you've been told all kinds of bad things about China. We've learned that the Chinese have this long history, like, would you believe? Not five centuries, but five millennia, you know. And, and you know, they're traditionally not expanding. They have locked probes. They got a hundred, <laughs> they got a billion point four people there. And, and you know, uh, what they say is the Chinese, they say, look, can't we, can't we just work things out? I mean, uh, could we have a, a win-win thing? And we used to think that oh, that was a Chicom plot, but maybe, Mister, maybe Mister Biden, we ought to think about that because you know they don't like us uh, uh, running our ships up and down their 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 uh, 
coastline and going through the Taiwan Strait and all that stuff. And we made a deal, you know, over 50 years ago that Taiwan was part of China and they see us reneging on that. And so, so maybe we ought to, maybe we ought to see if the Chinese are serious and that, that they really don't like us impinging on their part of the world. And uh, when they hear John Kirby, for example, the White House spokesman for national security, uh, he said recently, you know, the Chinese, when they come into Cuba or they come into where, they're not coming into our ocean. I'll tell you that for sure. Well, how about the Chinese attitude? Could they be thinking, you know, why is the U.S. coming into our ocean? Now, if we were... We're going to attack the U.S. That would be something else. But we're not Japan in 1941. I mean, we've we got enough problems. We've, we've succeeded in bringing about 60% of our people out of abject poverty over the last two decades. That's what we're concerned about. And we don't need all this, this stuff going on in Taiwan and all that stuff. So let's deal. Uh, unfortunately, there's one other factor that we haven't mentioned, and that's what I call the Mickey Mat. Uh, the people who profiteer on this situation. Very briefly, it's a new acronym. It substitutes for the old MIC, the Military Industrial Complex. If you got a pencil, you might want to take it down. It's the Military Industrial Congressional Intelligence Media Academia Think Tank Complex. Each one of those institutions plays a vital role and keeping all this stuff going, none more important than the media. That's why I say media as if in all caps, okay? The media is the linchpin without the media, which is controlled by the rest of the Mickey Mat. Mind you, you can't make this succeed. And Eisenhower himself knew that because he warned that the only way you can have an antidote to the MIC, as he called it, military-industrial complex in those days, he said, was by a well-informed citizenry. And we ain't got that now, Steve. I think you'll probably agree with that. And that's why I'm delighted to come on onto a program like yours uh, to to speak my truth and to draw on where I've been for five decades watching Soviet and now Russian leaders. A, a couple of quick questions. So, well, actually, let me, let me first remind my listeners that because every, every time someone said, in my mind, every time somebody says something sane about the Russians, the, the tactic is to call them a Putin appeaser, a Putin, um, you know, uh, someone who's been who's been uh, corrupted by Putin, et cetera, et cetera. They did this to Stephen Cohen, who for many years when I was growing up was one of the leading public experts on Russia. And because uh, he didn't agree with everything said about Trump and Russia, they, they vilified him in media. I'm sure they're vilifying Ray whenever they get the chance. But I just want to remind my audience that Ray is one of the Cold Warriors who won the Cold War. That was his job from 1963 until 1990, and we won the Cold War. So people like that, I think, are the ones who probably have the most expertise to judge what is actually happening today in the world. Um, my question for you, Ray, is, are things actually worse than they were in 1963? Because in 63, they may have killed a president to get their way. You've pointed out that they control the media and the think tanks and the Congress, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, maybe you could just compare the situation today and the situation when you were a young man. Long time ago, Steve. <laughs> uh, gosh, it's worse now. No one has been held accountable. The media in particular, George W. Bush running around, war criminal that he is, starting an unnecessary war in Iraq based on intelligence that was cooked. The media. Let me give you just one example on the, the pages of the Washington Post, the op-ed pages, uh, in 2002 and early 2003, was something like 90% of the op-eds were saying, 
Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. We have to get them before he, he uses them on us, okay? Fred Hyatt was the name of the fellow running that out that page. And after this is all over, oh, a year or two after, he went up to the Columbia School of Journalism. And he was asked by one of these students, uh, Mr. Hyatt, uh, you kept asserting, and your, your columnist kept asserting as, as cold fact that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Flat fact. Now, how do you, but he didn't. Uh, how do you explain that? And Hyatt said in this very pregnant comment, please listen. Well, if Saddam Hussein didn't have weapons of mass destruction, we probably should not have said that he did. Period. End quote. Now, my, my, my tutor in pr- professional journalism was a fellow named Robert Perry, who died about five years ago. Okay. I was at his side when he heard that. And he said, Ray, I thought that was sort of a, a, a core belief of professional journalism that if something is not so, you, you're not supposed to say that it is. I mean, hello. So, What's the teaching point here? Well, Hyatt was cashiered as soon as this all came out, right? Well, actually, no. They kept him on as head of the op-ed page of the Washington Post for 20 more years. Enough said. Okay. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Uh Ray, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm glad I could finally get you on the show. And uh, I just want to say again that I admire the actions you've taken in the last 20 plus years to do what you can to restore sanity to the American polity. So thank you very much for your efforts. I wish you all the best. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate it.